done this before. <laughs> and if I, I think that if I had known I was going to be doing this when I first walked in the door to this hall, <laughs> I would have turned right around and walked out. <clears throat> um, my heart is pounding, my mouth is dry, <clears throat> I may have difficulty finding my breath. <laughs> Um, I've been teaching a little bit in California for the last year and speaking mostly with small groups of people, um, giving Dharma talks to my cat. And <laughs> so this is a little different for me. <clears throat> so I hope my nervousness doesn't get in the way of um, what I'm wanting to say tonight. Doing this practice is like being involved in a very intimate relationship. In fact, you could say it's the most intimate relationship we'll ever have, and that is the one with ourselves. What happens in an intimate relationship? We find out more about who we are. Stripped of our usual defenses, illusions, and pretenses. And that is what the practice does. It really shows us who we are unadorned. And the challenge of this kind of intimacy is not to run away and hide, but to keep opening to all of who we are. And most important of all, to learn to love. Can we open our hearts to ourselves? Can we learn to love and accept ourselves just as we are? With all of our failings and imperfections. The invitation of intimacy, whether with another or with ourselves, is to open, to reveal more of who we are. Often, though, we don't really, truly accept the invitation. We tend to settle instead into repetitive patterns of acting and feeling and thinking, which keep us kind of safe and protected. As you sit here, just being present with your experience, what does the mind do? It tends endlessly to repeat itself. By now you know the top ten tunes. You know your reactions to the lunch line, to people coming in late to the hall, to the person in front of you whose beeper goes off, over and over and over again. <laughs> One of the most habitual tendencies of mind is the tendency not to be present. The tendency to avoid what is here, to want what is not here, and so be seduced into fantasy or memory. Not being present for most of us becomes a lifelong habit. So that even when we are put in an environment which encourages and supports our being present, 
We keep repeating the past. We stay with what is known, avoiding what is unknown. I'd like to read a story. Once there was a great black bear who lived in the mountains. He was happy and free. When he wasn't sleeping, he spent much of his time searching for food. Sometimes he found some, and sometimes he didn't. That was his life. One day, some men came and captured him, and they took him to a large circus where they locked him in a small cage. Soon an animal trainer taught him to perform circus tricks. Each time the bear performed a trick correctly, he would be fed. The rest of the time, he just walked back and forth in his cage. It was a small cage, so he got to know it very well. He always had enough food, and soon he forgot about his life in the mountains. One night, after several years had passed, some vandals crept into the circus and broke open all the animal cages. The bear was suddenly free, and he left the circus and found his way back to the mountains that had once been his home. But the mountains were now unfamiliar, and it was not easy for him to find food. So he began turning somersaults. (laughs) Forwards and backwards, backwards and forwards. Some other bears watched him for a while, (laughs) and then asked him what he was doing. Oh, he replied, I'm doing tricks so that I'll get food. You rockhead, they laughed. (laughs) You're in the mountains. Who is going to bring you food for turning somersaults? You must find it yourself. The bear had become so attached to his habitual patterns that even when he was freed, He was still acting within the limitations of his cage. We all do this. Our compulsive tendencies to repeat the past are like cages, which we take with us wherever we go, keeping us unfree and imprisoned. So how do we free ourselves? There is a way, and the way requires that we learn to pay attention. It sounds so simple. (laughs) Learning to pay attention is really a very radical act because it brings, to bring awareness to each moment of our experience cuts through the momentum of repetitive patterns of thinking and feeling and acting. In paying attention, we begin to neutralize conditioned tendencies of mind. We begin to wake up. We create more space in the mind, which allows for our naturally wholesome qualities of being to shine forth. 
it's not a small task. And even when we make the resolve to pay attention, we still forget. Our friend Nasruddin, the wise Sufi fool, <laughs> our friend Nasruddin went to see a psychiatrist. <laughs> he said, my trouble is that I can't remember anything. When did this start? asked the psychiatrist. <laughs> when did what start? asked Nasruddin. <laughs> From Achan Chah. Achan Chah described how the Buddha had encouraged his monks by stating that those who practiced diligently would surely be enlightened in seven days. A young American monk heard this and asked if it was still true. Achan Cha promised that if the young monk was continuously mindful without break for only seven days, he would become enlightened. <laughs> Excitedly, the young monk started his seven days, only to be lost in forgetfulness ten minutes later. <laughs> Coming back to himself, he again started his seven days only to become lost once more in mindless thought, perhaps about what he would do after his enlightenment. <laughs> again and again he began his seven days, and again and again he lost his continuity of mindfulness. A week later he was not enlightened, but he had become very much aware of his habitual fantasies and wanderings of mind a most instructive way to begin his practice on the path to real awakening. It's not easy to be continuously mindful. If you've learned nothing else since you've been here, it's probably that. In the beginning, our ability to pay attention is not strong, and so we practice, and we find that over time the, the momentum of mindfulness builds and moments of awareness increase. We do begin to see more clearly, and we find increasingly that we can actually come to rest in things just as they are, without the compulsive need to change or fix or try to control what is happening. <laughs> so this way of training the mind and opening the heart requires that we learn to pay attention not just when we're on retreat and not just when we're sitting in meditation at home, but for every moment of our lives, through all the activities and counters of our days. And it is no small task. But the good news is that the opportunity to pay attention is always with us. Every moment, under all conditions, the opportunity is being presented to us to pay attention, to wake up. 
And actually, that is the incredible gift of the human realm. It is a realm of endless opportunities to wake up. So what is needed to keep us paying attention? We might think, oh, that's interesting. But what is actually needed? What is needed is effort. Effort. That's what I'd like to explore a little bit with you tonight. The word itself may make you cringe slightly. It really doesn't sound like very much fun. We probably all have a lot of negative associations to the word effort. It's usually associated in our minds with some kind of struggle, with being grim and serious and tight. I know it certainly was associated, that was my association with it when I first started practice. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my first experience of um, Buddhist practice. It was in the summer of 1979, and I was living in Los Angeles, and I had only read a few little books about Zen practice. I really didn't know very much at all. But I heard of a Zen center outside of Los Angeles called Mount Baldy Zen Center. And I saw some pictures of it, and it looked kind of rustic. And I thought, oh, how nice to go meditate on a mountaintop. Sounded quite serene. So a friend and I went. We signed up for a seven-day sashin, (laughs) not knowing at all what we were getting ourselves into. Uh, Those of us who survived this experience later called it Zen boot camp. And it was that and more. It's a form of Zen practice called Rinzai, which is the most ascetic and most physically vigorous and demanding of of, um, Zen forms. They have a real kind of enlightenment or bust attitude. I knew nothing. I mean, I just wandered into the place. I was given a robe to wear. I didn't know for several days that I had my robe on backwards. (laughs) That was how hip I was. The schedule was long. It started at 3 in the morning. It went to 10 at night. And you had no choice about whether to come to sittings or not. You were either with the group every moment of the day or you weren't doing the sashin. It was simple as that. At 3 in the morning, you were awakened by a bell, a monk, who would come into your room, throw on the lights, and if you didn't get out of bed fast enough, he would pull you out of bed. (laughs) We were with the group all all day. And... um, the, the um, kind of ritual that was required of, of bowing in certain ways when you came in and out of the sitting hall. The posture was very formal, very precise, down to the, the, the look on your face and the, the corners of the mouth were turned down. They weren't turned up. And um, you had to keep your arms in this kind of very precise posture as if you had an, I remember this, as if you had an egg under each armpit. And the result of this for me was that about a week, for about a week after the session was over, my arms were still in this position. 
Well, needless to say, I did everything wrong. For those of you who are feeling like you're doing everything wrong, <laughs> this should be reassuring to you because not only did I feel like I was doing everything wrong, they told me I was doing everything wrong. Somehow I would always, they, everybody would be bowing in one direction and I would be bowing in another. They did a form of, of Japanese chanting, which is very fast. You have to, to keep the chant very, very, very fast. It has a kind of remarkable effect on the mind because you, you cannot be anywhere but right there. But I would, somehow lose it and everybody would stop chanting except for me and I would still be going. Um, my friend Nancy, um, also wearing her robe, um, brought with her a supply of raisins because that was something she really liked and she would um, put them in the sleeves of her robe. <laughs> To, to get as a little treat now and then for herself, but every time she bowed, her raisins would fall. <laughs> her raisins would fall out of her robe, and I would giggle, and we'd lose it constantly. Well, I was actually in shock. I was actually in shock for several days and sort of in a traumatized state and I guess the the effect of lack of sleep and this traumatic frame of mind by about the fourth day suddenly in the in one sitting in the zendo I just started crying and I couldn't stop and they yelled at me stop crying and I just I couldn't the more they yelled the more I cried I was wailing actually <laughs> I had to be taken out of the zendo. <laughs> really, it's a miracle I'm here. <laughs> um, it was quite phenomenal. What I'm trying to point to was that that kind of effort, which was, which was total and unrelenting effort, I was not prepared for. And I was much too traumatized and tense from this experience to learn anything. It just became sheer survival. <laughs> so when I, when I finally wandered into a Vipassana retreat um, several years later, it took me several years to recover from this experience. When I finally came to a Vipassana retreat, it was such a relief. To be given a schedule to work with and to be trusted rather than forced to come to sittings. As you've noticed, neither Jack nor Rodney are barreling into your room in the morning to yank you out of bed to get you in the hall. And to have options to be able to sit for longer periods, to do longer walking, and to have the space to discover what worked for me and what did not. And it made me feel like I could actually trust myself. And what I found in this more permissive environment over time was one, my own rhythm of practice. I discovered that I was, I was an early morning sitter, that I actually liked to get up in the morning, which I didn't know when I was at Mount Baldy. And over time, a discipline of practice which grew from within me 
and that over time I was actually making an effort equal to that required by the Zen Sashin experience. But not from having to do it, but rather from a very strong interest and strong motivation to practice. And it became an effortless effort. A very relaxed and very energized effort. So based on my experience, <clears throat> what I have seen about effort is that when there is interest and a spirit of exploration and discovery, and when we connect with that place in us which really wants to grow and to learn and to be challenged, that all we really need is to be put in an environment which will support that and which will trust us to find our own way. And over time, we will blossom in that kind of environment. We will find ourselves transcending what we imagined were our limits, but without that unnecessary struggle and resistance. For me, that's been the real gift of Vipassana practice. And we can also learn, I feel, to give ourselves the same kind of support in the context of our daily lives. In fact, I feel it is essential because that we learn for ourselves a skillful use of effort in our daily lives, because as householders we rarely have much external support for doing practice. I mean, in your daily life, no one is going to come along with a stick and whack you to make you pay attention. Nor can you rely on a retreat schedule with bells ringing or teachers' voices wafting over the airwaves reminding you to pay attention. And it's not easy to remember to pay attention in a culture which seems to actually encourage distraction. So it does take effort. But what kind of effort? Does it have to be a grim and struggling kind of effort? One of the problems I feel in talking about effort is that effort in our minds gets mixed up with other <laughs> motivations and attitudes about ourselves, and that this can become especially clear on retreat. For example, we might have the motivation to be a good yogi, to show that we can do what is expected of us, that we can fit in, we can do it right. So our effort gets aimed in this direction, and we may get very involved in the form of the practice, of how it looks to others. We may imagine that being a good yogi means being super slow. That's a very common kind of misconception. For example, when we go in to eat, we may not exactly feel like eating slowly, but we do it that way because we, the authorities, have told you to, and you want to look at least like you know what you're doing. So you may eat a very slow lunch, but it may become kind of grimly mechanical, 
with more awareness of the grim grimness and the mechanicalness than actually of the eating. Another option is to use the suggestion to slow down as an opportunity to really investigate and explore the whole process of eating, to open your senses, to actually see and smell and taste, and to be aware of the very powerful impact that food has on us. You can make it a very interesting and alive process of discovery. You can find out what is the experience of actually tasting and chewing food. How many bites does it take of your favorite dish before you stop tasting it? How many bites of food can you really be present for? In other words, you can use the slowing down as an opportunity to investigate, as Rodney was speaking of the other night, to find out how things work, to be fully present. Another very common idea about effort is that it must be hard work. And if it's not difficult and kind of tight and serious, that we're not really trying hard enough. We might believe that if we're not suffering, we're not really doing the practice. After all, the Buddha said life is suffering. So if we're feeling light and joyous, we must not be doing it right. <laughs> or our effort may be colored by a kind of self-judgment and a lack of confidence. The feeling I'm, I'm, I'm probably not doing it right which can result in a feeling of kind of helplessness or despair about oneself. Or our effort may be colored by a more, even more pervasive sense of unworthiness and self-hatred. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve to be happy. Our judgments about our practice and about ourselves are probably one of the biggest obstacles on our spiritual journey. Many, if not most, of our judgments are not accurate. Yet we cling to them, we believe them. I remember some years ago when um, Munindra was here, you, many of you probably know him, Joseph's teacher from India, and he said something which I've never forgotten. One night in a talk, he said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. That was kind of amazing. In the same way, we can say, the thought about ourselves is not ourself. Our thought about ourselves can never capture our total reality, the complete complexity of who we are. And yet we believe these negative judgments about ourselves. It's like this thought is really me. These over here aren't me, but this one is it. 
This can become a real constraint on our energy and our effort. Or perhaps we make effort based on an expectation that if we, if we make effort, something big is going to happen. What if nothing big happens? Maybe nothing big will happen, at least not like you imagined. But that doesn't mean you are doing it wrong, that your effort isn't paying off. A lot is happening when you're sitting, and much of it is quite subtle. And while you're in the middle of it, it's very hard to see it. On a more subtle level, a more subtle influence on our effort may be the desire to control our experience, to make something happen or avoid what is unpleasant. The slight tendency to control the breath or to use concentration as a way to avoid other things which may be present, like feelings. Or we may get involved in trying to make things go away, the pain in the back or the fear, you know, like you have this new tool, attention, and if I use it, it'll go away. And this kind of effort to control may actually be on a very subtle level, not always obvious. But that's not the kind of effort that we're cultivating here. And lastly, some women, or many women, may feel their effort is subtly influenced by trying to do a practice that has almost entirely been the province of men, a kind of pa patriarchal or monastic sensibility often has been predominant in the way the teaching has been presented. And so we as women may feel a very subtle sense of not quite fitting the model that is presented, as if we might have to leave parts of ourselves behind, like our bodies, our feelings. <laughs> our intuition in order to fit the practice. So our effort may be muted, it might be held back, perhaps not feeling certain that we belong or even if we want to belong. Fortunately, I feel many women are now actively and vocally engaged in bringing a more feminine sensibility into the practice, not changing the teaching, but including an emphasis which has been sometimes lacking. And I also feel it's very fortunate that there are men who are also including this emphasis. And more specifically, I think of Jack. So to review, I see that there's, there are many kinds of misguided effort. One, the effort to be a good yogi, the effort that becomes serious and grim and difficult, the kind of holding back of effort based on the feeling that we're not good enough or we don't fit the model or effort that's based on high expectations 
that there must be a payoff. The aim of effort is not to be a good yogi or to make something big happen or to improve ourselves or to control our experience. The aim of effort is really much more simple than that. The aim of effort is simply to come back into the present moment to soften, to open to just what is here. Effort means no holding back. It's a letting go, not trying, not forcing, not pushing, an opening. (coughs) It means bringing our attention back to the present moment with a softness, and a gentle persistence over and over and over again. This is the kind of effort which keeps, which allows the process to keep unfolding. And this ability to keep coming back and opening with a soft and caring attention is what builds confidence in ourselves and trust in the process itself. We learn we can accommodate whatever comes up. So where does the motivation for this kind of effort come from? What I have found is that is that effort based on genuine interest and a spirit of exploration is what sustains me on my journey. It's that spirit of investigation that Rodney was speaking of the other night. To awaken interest and curiosity and a sense of discovery. So a key, I feel, to finding the right use of effort is for each of us to connect in ourselves with what it is about the practice or the teaching which really interests us. What do you really want to know? What do you want to discover for yourself? It might be a question. Who am I? Or what is this all about? Is there truth in what the Buddha said? Or it might be about the practice itself. What happens when I really pay attention to the breath? What happens to your anger or your fear or your boredom when you really pay attention? and allow yourself to feel them. What happens when you notice thinking? What happens when you actually soften into the sensations of pain? Try it. Use the practice to explore, to discover for yourself. 
The practice itself will teach you much more than we or anybody else can and in a much more alive and direct way. Find out for yourself what all this is about. This is what the journey is about, your own process of discovery. But, you might be thinking, this is boring. This is so boring. I don't want to do this. Then look at your boredom. Become an expert on boredom. Look at every nuance of boredom. In Zen, there's a saying, if something is boring after two minutes, try it for four. <laughs> if it is still boring, try it for eight, 16 minutes, 32 minutes. <clears throat> Eventually, one will discover it's not boring at all. It's very interesting. So allowing yourself to connect with a real sense of interest and exploration of each moment can lead to a way of practicing which is really very wholehearted. Another source of effort can come from a very deep listening to the heart, to the voice inside which says, I really want to know the truth. I want to be able to love, to be wise, and to be truly compassionate. And what better aspiration is there to give our time and energy to? We give our energy to so many unfruitful pursuits. Another story. The need to dedicate oneself to practice can be illustrated with a story from the life of the Buddhist master, Asanga. Asanga was a serious practitioner who had completed three years of intensive meditation without much benefit or realization. When he came out of intensive retreat, he encountered a man who was polishing a rock with a feather. He kept rubbing the feather against the rock. Asanga asked the man what he was doing, and the man replied that anything one wants to accomplish quickly is not effective, but through applying cons consistent and diligent effort, one always meets with success. Although polishing the rock with a feather was slow work, he told Asanga, that with proper, consistent, and diligent effort, he was able to make the surface of the rock smooth. After his conversation with the man, Asanga thought to himself, here is someone involved in an activity which is not important and not even beneficial, but yet he applies himself with so much diligence. Here I am, a person involved with the practice of the Buddha Dharma, a means towards perfect liberation, how is it that I lack such diligence? So Asanga went back into retreat and spent three more years in intensive meditation. I had a 
a Zen teacher who used to say, we practice and endure all kinds of difficulties because our Buddha nature wants us to. Another teacher of mine called it the evolutionary urge in us. It is the urge which wants to grow, to open, to, cha to be challenged, to take risks, and to do what is difficult. It's really quite amazing. It's like there's something even stronger in us than the desire for pleasure. It's the desire to grow, to open. It's like we have these little seeds inside us of wisdom and love and compassion. And they start to awaken and then they begin to grow and call for our attention. And when we practice, we are actually nurturing these little seeds so that they may grow and mature and blossom. So, going on a spiritual journey requires learning to pay attention in all the circumstances and conditions which life brings us. And paying attention takes effort. So that learning to work with a balance of effort is a key to practice and a key to living a life of awareness. Not to effort in a way that makes you tense, not to give up too easily in a way that leads to a feeling of helplessness or lethargy, but to actually use effort in the service of discovery and exploration of what interests you, what calls you from the very deepest part of your being. To learn through the practice the right balance of effort to be relaxed and alert. What does that feel like in the body? To be gentle and persistent. To be open and steadfast. The fruits of learning to pay attention is a mind which is awake. Such a mind <coughs> is our greatest protection. So, thank you for your effort to pay attention. That's really funny because we were talking in the staff room the other day about wouldn't it be neat if there was a little applause meter above <laughs> So are there any questions, easy questions? <laughs>
it's subtle. It's not real obvious. I've been working with women in California in the last year, exploring this. Um, basically, it's it's language, it's style, it's emphasis, rather. It's not like there's another teaching that women have, you know, that's different from men's teaching. I think the Dharma is, is true for, it goes beyond gender. But a certain way of presenting teachings can sometimes um, not feel to women like it's addressing who they are or their conditions, their realities, their experience. Does that help? In terms of what, <laughs> what would be imparted to Buddhism that, that is shared by both men and women, can you, can you say a I don't think we know yet because we're just beginning to discover it ourselves. It's sort of an awakening in women of what their spirituality is about and what we have to offer. I don't think it's clear yet. It's an exploration that many women are engaged in and um, uh, it's more intuitive than, than um, you know, I'm having trouble articulating it right, right now. I had the feeling that might provoke some, <laughs> some thoughts, but um, I think it's an area that um, women are, you know, exploring not only within the context of Buddhism, but in many contexts. And it's, it's a process. So stay tuned. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I'm wondering <coughs> just about the, um, the way or the possibility for us to help others when we're so engrossed in trying to help ourselves a lot through the practice. <coughs> um, I find myself getting caught a lot in, ju- in the judging line when I think about influencing someone with my Dharma awareness or Dharma, mm-hmm. dharma knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a minute about just the balance mm-hmm. of the personal work and not needing for someone to know your truths or your, you know, what your, mm-hmm. your understandings are, but also being of use to other people who you feel could really benefit from, mm-hmm. from the teachings. Mm-hmm. The question is about service and how to share the, the practice with others without, um, how, how to truly serve others and, and share your, your knowledge or your truth um, in a way that's effective, I think is what you're really asking. And what I have found in my experience, it does absolutely no good to tell anybody about the practice, particularly if they're not interested. It's more in your being and in your way of relating to them that will communicate something to them. And, um, and that when somebody wants to know, you can't keep them away. When somebody wants to practice, they're going to do it. And I've seen some, that happen to several friends of mine, and it's very joyful. But it comes kind of, you know, you can't lay a trip on anybody because they, they're not going to want that. So it's in a way, our, our task is really just to be who we are in a very full and alive and compassionate way. And that communicates. That in itself is is the service. Yeah. Oh, 
Jack introduced you, he said you were a psychotherapist. And I'm wondering how your involvement in the practice has affected your work as a psychotherapist. How has it changed? The question is, how has my work changed? <clears throat> my work as a psychotherapist changed since doing the practice. Um, <laughs> I don't do psychotherapy anymore. <laughs> um, not that it can't be combined, I think, very skillfully, but I prefer now in my work, I work with um, Chinese herbal medicine and acupressure. I just prefer a more nonverbal and um, direct means of working with energy rather than getting into the content of people's experience. Um, and I, I love teaching meditation because it's actually giving people tools that they can use in their life. So, yeah. In your work with women in the last year, I was wondering what kinds of um, insights women have shared or explored together about the bearing children, actually the, the experience of yeah. giving birth and raising children combined with using the practice. Yeah. When when you said, you know, how it's a monastic retreat, uh -huh. I mean, how the, the it's often presented in retreat settings, that's for me a prime example of how we have to, as women, bring yeah. Right. Um, she's asking about um, what women, in my work with women, what women have perceived about uh, <coughs> women using the practice in their lives. Um, women who are raising children and giving birth and all of that and how that relates. Actually, I would prefer not to get into this now, but I'm before the end of the retreat, I am going to offer a time for women who are interested here to meet together and talk about some of these issues. So that might be a more appropriate time to go into all that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And, and have your voice come out. Thank you. Yes. Um, you asked for easy questions. Yes. So I was just wondering if the bear in the story was by any chance the Yogi Bear. <laughs> That's, that's much too esoteric a question <laughs> Yes. It might at the end. <laughs> it's a very, it's a pretty big topic, you know. It's. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm curious. Why is it that these questions of and by women need to be kept from the rest of us? <laughs> I think the issue is, he asked why these questions about women need to be kept from, the, from men. Um, <laughs> um, 
It's pretty simple. It's a question of just uh, feeling safe. That's hard to say in a way, but I know it to be true. Yeah. It doesn't keep men from talking about it. They can have a group and talk about how they see uh, the patriarchy of Buddhism uh, reflected in our practice. Mm -hmm. Yes. <coughs> I don't. I don't sense any patriarchy, however, no. in this. <coughs> In this practice, I, I mm -hmm. mean, that's me and mm -hmm. my reaction. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't, I, mm -hmm. I, as a woman, I don't feel the need yes. to, uh, to, to, to um, have that separation. I feel that it encompasses um, the, entire th the entire sexual panorama of male, female. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to visualize the difference, mm -hmm. and that's what I'm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's so complete, I don't understand the mm -hmm. vision. Um, she says she doesn't see the need for, she doesn't feel the patriarchy in the tradition and doesn't see the need for um, that particular um, discussion, perhaps, among women. All I can invite you to do is to come to a, the women's group. Women have come to my groups in California and, and have been surprised at, in, in discovering things that perhaps they hadn't thought about before. It's subtle, and I think we're in a very fortunate, I just want to say overall that I feel like we're in a really fortunate situation because the Dharma has come to the West and women are very fully engaged in the practice and really um, we have a tremendous opportunity here to be fully, to fully participate in a way that hasn't been possible before. So I feel like whatever patriarchy, it's more in the past than in the present. But we're still finding our place within this, um, within this practice and this teaching. Or in other countries. It's still, from what I understand, it's still pretty prevalent in Asia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's that paradox, you know, that we are that we are connected, and that. But we are connected. We are all connected as 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 living beings. We are all connected, and we are separate, and we we have different conditioning. Men and women undergo a certain. There are certain differences in our conditioning, which create different ways of responding and acting, etc. So I think that's enough for now. Um, we could go on and on. <laughs> but. There's a couple of announcements to make. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.